So again, Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of our Lord. And when we look at Isaiah, it's very difficult to, to kind of peg uh, who his audience is, uh, who exactly uh, is he speaking to. And part of that is just, just Isaiah had a very long ministry, but part of that is the cultural setting of, of Isaiah uh, changed a lot over his life. Uh, Jerusalem at this time, it would seem, in Isaiah 40, uh, 40 opens up a section that doesn't end until chapter 55, but it would seem that uh, in uh, chapter 40, Jerusalem is in utter panic, uh, again, trying to piece together the chronology to determine Isaiah's audience. Uh, it would seem that when Isaiah uh, 40 opens up, Israel, uh, the northern uh, tribes of uh, the uh, Hebrew people, the 10 northern tribes that Israel uh, was just decimated 20 years before Isaiah chapter 40, or so it seems. Uh, Hezekiah would appear because he's there in 36 through 39. Hezekiah would seem to be the king right now. And God has told Hezekiah that uh, though he was once very, very ill, uh, on the edge of death, God has said, I will give you 15 years to live. He has promised that he will uh, deliver not only Jerusalem from Assyria, the nation that destroyed the northern kingdom, uh, but that God is going to preserve Hezekiah, his very life, for 15 years. And then right before we come to Isaiah chapter 40, we learn that Hezekiah has done something. He has received a glorious, beautiful promise from God. But what Hezekiah has done is he has invited envoys from this upstart city. Assyria, those are, uh, those are the menaces in the north. 
What could go wrong if I invite uh, these people from the south, from a city of the name of Babylon? And he invites these envoys and he opens up the city of Jerusalem and he opens up the wealth of the temple and he invites them to tour and to see all of the wealth of the city of Jerusalem. What a foolish thing to do. And we look at the city of Jerusalem as Isaiah preaches in, in, uh, at the beginning of chapter 40 and, and we wonder what they're like. We have a Hezekiah who seemed to be the wisest king in a very long time and the city has been encrusted with layers of immorality, uh, worshiping uh, idols in the high places, neglecting to worship the one true God. And Hezekiah, he seemed, well, he seemed so right. Things will be better now. And oh, this city has a hard time loving their God. And it's not the affection of their God that has waned, it's their affection. And Isaiah writes to us this. I think the passage this morning can be divided uh, in three stages, as it were. It opens with a, with a divine conference, uh, which, would, which seems to be the very mind of God. And then there's a whisper so that the news of that divine conference gets out. But, but after this divine conference, uh, there is a reminder to Isaiah and to the people of Jerusalem and to us who to trust. Right in the middle of the passage, that reminder uh, that God's word will endure forever. And then at the very end, something so familiar, a, a herald shows up and stands upon a mountain and preaches the gospel. Three progressive stages, and each of them God making more and more of himself known. But I think something that we miss in this passage is right at the beginning in the first two verses. I don't know if you were in uh, a high school made to read uh, Russian short stories, but there's uh, one by Anton Chekhov called A Problem. Uh, he's writing uh, this story in 1884, uh, and the story shapes up like this. It's about a young man who's uh, 25 years old, uh, uh, Sasha Uskov, uh, and Sasha has done something so foolish. Sasha has gone into the city, into a bank, and he's uh, written a, f a fake promissory note, and he signed it, and he collected uh, 1,500 rubles. That's more than a year's pay. And he, and he took this money from the bank on false pretenses, and he squanders it away, uh, partying with his friends. And he can't pay it back, and he's been caught. The, the results for a young man like Sasha are, uh, if he's lucky, he'll just get debtor's prison, but more likely because of the amount of money, Sasha is going to be exiled to Siberia, and so it presents a problem for his family. Hence the title of the short story, A Problem. Sasha has three uncles that are talking about what to do. They, they meet together in, uh, the, uh, in Sasha's family's home. And, and, and everyone is, is evacuated from the study. Uh, all of the family, all of the servants, and the, and the door is shut and locked. And the three uncles are in that room deliberating what is going to be Sasha's future, given what he has done. The decision's very difficult. One of his uncles is a, is a colonel with a, a, a big military history. And one of his uncles uh, actually works for the, is a secretary of the treasury in the city. And not only that, the Uskov family is very, very famous. And so as the uncles deliberate in this closed door, Sasha 
sits in the hallway and awaits what's going to happen. It's a hard one for the uncles. I mean, to be sure, uh, really what Sasha needs, and they all know it, Sasha needs to uh, pay his debt. This is an honorable family that pays debts. Uh, Sasha doesn't have the money, so Sasha needs to turn himself in, and he needs to go to prison or perhaps even Siberia. The family's honor dictates that. But at the same time, the family is so famous, and if Sasha does that, then the honor of the family deteriorates. The press, well, the press is going to make this known far and wide. And Sasha sits in the hallway and he awaits. When I think of verses one and two of this passage, I think that uh, poor Isaiah, he's, he's, he himself can't possibly understand what's happening in verses one and two. The Holy Spirit gives him these words, but what these words seem to be about is a divine conversation that happens away from Isaiah. It's God's internal musing over his people. Listen to these first two verses, how emotive they are. Uh, God seems to be speaking to who? We don't know to whom. And yet God says, comfort, comfort. These are my people. Listen to that. Comfort, comfort. He wants to comfort his people and they are his people. And God says, my people. And he says, uh, he uh, he says that indeed uh, they belong to me. My people, says your God. And God seems to be uh, sharing uh, a deep inner tenderness. If we can say that about God, how strange it is, but uh, a tenderness that God has for his people. He says uh, that he speaks tenderly to them. He says that he cries to her. He, he says uh, adoring things uh, about this object of God's affection. He says that her warfare, it's ended. It's done. He says that her iniquity, it too is ended. It's done. There's a sense in which this actually doesn't make sense. And listen to uh, the very end of verse two. Uh, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Uh, that's difficult to understand, but the word double uh, really ought to be understood as an exact copy for her sins. Uh, she's received an exact copy for all of her sins. All of her sins have been accounted for. There's, there's no judgment that is left undone. Everything is done. These are the most secure people in the history of the cosmos. God calls them his own, and indeed they are. He comforts them. He loves them tenderly. He has ended their warfare. He has ended their iniquity. He's forgiven everything. He has accounted for everything. This, well, this is how God talks about his people. To himself, a conversation in the divine trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't know. But this is God's heart for his people. It's his people who have wavered, not as affection. And then as this passage moves on, look what happens in verse 3. We leave the conference room, as it were. Uh, the noise seems to creep just a little bit under the door. Uh, 
enters the hallway. It's a whisper in many ways. Look what uh, Isaiah says about it in verse 3. He says, a voice cries, but he doesn't tell us who that voice is. A voice cries. There's, there's some kind of a speaking that takes place. It's so hard to tell what's being described here. Who's doing the speaking? The noise that escapes under the door. Now you need to know that all of the gospel writers go to Isaiah 40 to describe John the Baptist, all of them. So when we look at this passage and we imagine that, it, that it's hard to determine who exactly is doing the speaking here, and then for Isaiah, why would Isaiah speak about himself in this way? It seems as though Isaiah is most certainly speaking at verse 6, 7, 8. But in verse 3, a voice cries and, and we're left hanging. Who is doing the speaking here? But in the New Testament, over and over and over again, we are told how to understand verse 3. In John's gospel, John the Baptist actually says, I am that voice crying out, John 1.23. That's how we understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament is preparatory for the New Testament, and we understand it fuller when we look at John chapter 1. I am the voice of the one crying out. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to know what exactly Isaiah thought when he wrote verse 3. I cannot wait to meet him. Did he write that and, and go to bed and wonder himself, that crying voice, who is that? We don't know. We can ask him, what did you think when you wrote that? But we know now, don't we? That's a preparation for John the Baptist. Uh, Isaiah seems to be unclear. Someone seems to be the speaker. And there's a sense in which even though Isaiah doesn't know who that speaker, he doesn't know who John the Baptist is, it does make sense for Isaiah to say this to his own audience. In that divine conference room, there is great affection for you. And then Isaiah can turn to his audience in Jerusalem and he can say that you are a people who are not unlike the Hebrew people living in the wilderness after the deliverance from Egypt. You too are a wilderness kind of people. Isaiah can say that to the audience in Jerusalem. You too are just as frail as those wilderness people, just as vulnerable you have no protection of a city and you're in the wilderness surrounded by enemies. The people in the wilderness, Isaiah recalls to mind, were the kind of people who were terrified about the future, alienated from the protection that Egypt offered and terrified about the future. Isaiah can say that in Jerusalem. You are like those people, the wilderness people. And then a voice says to you, Isaiah can say in Jerusalem, prepare, uh, literally uh, turn towards me, God says. Turn towards me, make straight, make yourself right. That's what Isaiah is crying out. At the Exodus, uh, this meant for the people of Israel to, uh, before there's an Israel, the Hebrew people, uh, to uh, obey God, to trust in God's plan for deliverance out of Egypt, to be prepared to say goodbye to their slavery uh, once and for all, to follow God's plan, to uh, follow his stipulations about the sacrificial lamb, to uh, sleep contentedly at night while the angel of death goes over their house, to put all of their trust in God, the great deliverer. That's what the people were called to do prior to the Exodus. But Isaiah can say that to his very audience in Jerusalem. 
turn towards God. Make yourself right. Pay attention to a God who makes himself known. And then in verses 4 and 5, the the voice promises that uh, this is going to be made easier because God himself is going to uh, come close to them. Boy, it's hard to discern uh, what Isaiah would mean saying that to the people of Jerusalem in his day, that God is going to uh, himself come close, that valleys will be lifted, mountains made low, uneven becomes uh, even, rough becomes smooth. Uh, God is going to make himself more evident to you, O people of Jerusalem, listening to the preaching ministry of Isaiah. You see, in the Exodus, uh, God came near to the people. How? He came near to the people, meeting them at Mount Sinai with thunder, lightning, smoke, terror. That's how God came closer to the people wandering in the wilderness. And Isaiah expects God to come closer to the people of his own city in Jerusalem. It seems to me that the best way to understand that is that God comes closer as he brings the people uh, back after exile and reintroduces them into Jerusalem after their exile in Babylon. God will make himself known more grandly than he is now. Surely he will return us from exile. That seems to be what Isaiah is saying. It's fascinating that Isaiah can preach this to his audience but we can preach it with far more clarity because we know that the whispering of news that creeps from underneath the door revealing God's tender affection for his own people, that that news is news offered by John the Baptist. He is the one who cries that news. And so when we come to Isaiah 40 verse uh, three, this crying is the crying of John the Baptist. And suddenly, this scene becomes very, very relevant. The conference room is God's divine affection for his own people. And John the Baptist shows up where? He shows up in the wilderness. You have to go to find him. He's deeply embedded in the wilderness. And not only that, John the Baptist is actually wearing the wilderness on him. He is a wilderness human being. Isaiah is preaching about the wilderness and John, he's it, the wilderness. And he shows himself before the people, reminding them of who they are coming out of the city, draped in luxury. He says, I am who you are, a wilderness people who need to hear again and again God's affection for his people. God's affection, he wears because he is a wilderness person who knows who Jesus is. And he tells them, John the Baptist does, uh, to prepare, to get ready. God is coming as close as he ever has come before. Closer than God was at Sinai. Uh, Closer than God was when he uh, ended the exile and returned the people to the city of Jerusalem. Closer than all of that. And what does John, this wilderness man, do? He points Oh, if Isaiah could point. But John points, and and he doesn't point to a time in history when something grand is going to happen. Moses uh, could clearly point to a mountain. Isaiah could point to uh, a future plan, a return from exile. But John the Baptist, 
he gets to point to a someone. Behold, this is what John the Baptist says. Behold, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 29. The answer of the wilderness is there. You see, Isaiah says in verse five of chapter 40, the glory of the Lord shall be be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And Isaiah had to wonder what that meant. Well, you're here this morning on the first Sunday of Advent. And I don't want you to wonder what Isaiah meant. Oh, to be sure, it would be hard were you hearing Isaiah preach in the eighth century, B.C., no doubt. But I don't want you to wonder. Because the glory of the Lord is revealed and all flesh shall see it together in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. That is the glory of God. Well, there's a sense in which this feels like it doesn't quite fit. Verses uh, 6 and 8, they remind Isaiah of something. Verses 6 through 8, they they, they seem to be like, they're put here for a reason, but they didn't originally fit here. And what's happening? Isaiah gets this reminder of the nature of what's happened in that conference room. God adores his people, but his people are undeserving, pathetic, sinful, wilderness people. But God continues to adore his people. And all of this seems unbelievable to Isaiah. There's a sense in which it seems unbelievable to me. I know my sin, and yet I know hardly half of it. And yet he adores me and his son. So what does God tell Isaiah that he might believe it more? He says that the word of our God will stand forever. He he reminds Isaiah that his word is truth. You know what's very interesting about verses six through eight? We know that Peter loved this verse and we know that James loved this verse. Imagine what Isaiah has to do. He, he has to hear God's great affection for his people and yet at the same time look around at the people and see all of their sin and their undeserving nature before God. And he has to somehow put those two things together. And God reminds him and says, but my word is true. You wither, my word doesn't. And Peter goes to this passage to assure Christians that are doubting You have been born again. You will not perish, Peter says to those who are doubting. If you're here this morning and you're doubting that God could love someone as filthy as you, well, 1 Peter chapter 1, God knew that. And he reminds Peter, a believer, to remind other believers. He does love you. You have been born again. You fade. His word does not. And you know, James, he's going to use this same passage in James chapter one. James is going to use this passage to remind Christians of of how they are are to live. James uses this passage to say, Christians, uh, yes, the the grass and the flower fades. Uh, You fade, but your wealth fades as well. Your wealth fades And James uses this passage to remind them, but God's word doesn't. 
You who are tirelessly seeking wealth, it'll fade, it'll fade. But God's word doesn't. That's what's eternal. One wonders if Isaiah is filled with doubt at how such a wicked people could receive such warmth and affection from God. And God reminds him, but my word is true and endures. And Peter approaches doubters and James uh, approaches uh, 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 sinners and uses the same verse. His word, it's true. It's true. And so we, we also ought to use verses uh, six through eight to, re, to uh, remind not only believers that uh, they indeed are born again, uh, to remind sinners that indeed everything you're fighting for is going to perish, but you have God himself. But we also need to remind non-believers that there is truth in the world, lasting truth. A truth with personality attached to it. A truth with a, with a speaker, with a creator, with a maker. The truth isn't a vague philosophical or scientific notion. It isn't a trendy uh, to change over the years. Truth is truth. And there is truth. It's the spoken word of the one who made you, whether you acknowledge him or not. And Isaiah is filled with encouragement being reminded that God's word endures forever. And then we come to verse nine. This is the great picture of gospel proclamation. Uh, this is the great Advent message. You, you see what I've done. I've asked you to, to kind of uh, wander around in this passage for a little while to see what's there. And, and what you discover, the, the noisiest part of the passage is, behold, the Lord comes with might in verse 10. He has in his very hands the spoils of victory. He's already won. He's earned his wages and he will care for his flock. He will treat them as a shepherd. He will gather them with tenderness. He will hold them close to himself. Do you hear this, brothers and sisters, that this is the gospel proclamation? I want you to also understand that this probably was hard even for Isaiah to believe. Affection like that for someone like me. Yes, affection like that for someone like Isaiah and me and you. This is a clear call for a relationship with the one true God. Over the next few Sundays, you're going to hear this call each time from the pulpit. A call to believe that this is the salvation that God has for you. And that salvation is in the person of Jesus Christ. The divine conference room has been opened up, has been exposed and it's been exposed to you by a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, that you too might become a believer. You know, looking back at a Chekhov's story, uh, Sasha was the kind of guy who sat out on the hallway and he listened to find out what's going to happen. And do you know what his uncles decided? Let's pay the debt. We'll pay the debt. No jail, no Siberia, 
There was one uncle in particular who advocated for him and they walk out and they give him the news and he, he walks, uh, walks out, of the, out of the house with uh, the one uncle who advocated for him most. And do you know what Sasha asked for? He wants more money. There's a party coming up. He's gonna need some more. And the uncle weeps. He sees Sasha's heart. And this morning, I want you to understand that we celebrate during the season of Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ, and we point to him afresh and we say, behold, the Lamb of God. But he will come again. And your opportunity to believe in the gospel is an opportunity that's here for you right now. Because when he comes again, he comes to judge. He comes to restore. He doesn't come to preach to you one last time. He comes to reveal himself. And Sasha, at the very end of the short story, says simply this, now I see that I'm a criminal. Yes, I'm a criminal. And it ends. But may it not end for you. You're going to hear over and over again that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ held out to you. At a second coming, you won't have this opportunity. See that you're a criminal. Acknowledge that you're a criminal. But just sense that wonderful affection that God holds out to you in Jesus Christ. Would you believe in him? And welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Would you pray with me? Father, continue to announce who we are. Father, continue to remind us that there's nothing becoming about us. That you might then remind us of the great grace that we have received from you and your affection for us in Christ Jesus. Would others sense that and yearn for that affection as well? In Jesus' name, amen.